morning. This morning I wanted to picture a race in your mind. And the race is about to begin. The starting gun is up, ready to be fired. But as you look around, the racers are just sitting around. Some have brought lawn chairs. They're sitting in them. Others are looking like they may race, but they're still in their sweats. Some are lacing up shoes. Suddenly that starting gun sounds, and the ones that are lacing up their shoes, they just carry on lacing up their shoes. When done, some of them start slowly down the track. A few that are still in their sweats, well, they just start down the track that way. The ones in the lawn chair, one or two get up and turn around and hesitate. Are they going to run or not? Others just stay in their chairs, and um, they cheer those who are slowly jogging along. Now you're probably thinking, well, what kind of race is that? If this were real, you'd be thinking, what a farce. Even though it's real, it means little to those who are participating. Obviously, the prize isn't worth it. Now, if the story is real, the problem is in their minds. Back in high school on track and field days, uh, you had to enter, I believe it was five events we had to enter. And I didn't like track and field because I could do well enough in the strength events, but there weren't enough strength events. So you always had to enter a couple races or jumping or whatever. <coughs> and since I had no jump in me, I'd enter some of the races uh, knowing full well that I was going to lose badly. And uh, I'd never entered with the intention of winning. Um, I entered the <coughs> 440 race and the one mile race. And there was a problem for the guys that are entering the race because they booked them back to back. And so if you ran the 440, you immediately came off the race, and then you lined up and went for the mile. And so they knew they would be tired and they'd be competing against fresh guys. So they made a deal. When the starting gun fired, they were going to slowly jog down the track, just stay even with each other. And when they got near the finish line, they had a point picked out. They would suddenly sprint to the line and see who would win. And uh, then they'd be fresh to go on to the one-mile race. They never included me in the conversation. They never thought to because I was no competition. And I saw my opportunity. When that gun fired, I came off that line giving it all I had. And by the time they realized what had happened, they couldn't catch me. <laughs> I was too far ahead. But we went immediately into the next race. And when the gun fired, I came off the line jogged a few feet, and then faded off the track. I was tired. I had no intention of running a race that I had no hope in. Now, the difference between the races was all in the mind. In the first race, suddenly I saw hope, and I gave it all I had. In the second race, there was no hope, and I didn't even try. And so what's going on in the mind was all the difference. And as we go to Peter here, he's seeking to answer the question, as strangers in this world, the chosen people with a living hope, we live out the gospel in the, the midst of an ungodly world and in the context of suffering. And so having given us the foundation of the gospel and our living hope, Peter moves into that practical application of this in uh, verse 13. And he begins with the mind. Our response to our living hope, our call to action, must begin in our minds. And so in verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, the King James, uh, instead of saying, uh, 
prepare your minds for action. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. And actually, this is the best translation. It's the most literal translation. But that, those words don't mean anything to us in our culture anymore. And so the translators use that, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. It comes from their culture. They wore those long, heavy robes uh, that went down to their feet, uh, tried to work hard or run a race. When you're wearing a long, heavy robe, it hinders you. And uh, so they would lift up those robes, tuck them into their sash, so their legs were free to run. They found freedom of movement. They were now ready for action. He uses that analogy for the mind. We're to prepare our minds for action. The answer's in the mind. Romans 12, 2 says we're to renew our minds. That's a different way of saying virtually the same thing. Then you are able to test and approve God's perfect will. You'll never be successful before God unless you renew your minds. And to renew your minds, you must first prepare it for action. So just in the mile race, I went nowhere in the race. Why? Because the mind was not prepared for the action that was needed. My mind was listening to my body, which was still tired from the 440 race, and there was no hope for the mile race. And so my body was saying, why torture me? What's the use? Why torture me? And so my mind was listening to my body rather than making my body listen to my mind. And so we must prepare our minds to do the necessary work, make the necessary judgments, getting rid of everything that stumbles and hinders us. We must take control of our minds and make our minds serve us. The problem with uh, so many people is they don't make their minds serve them. They don't make their minds serve them. When I was young, I had four years of piano lessons, and uh, I hated it. Um, but what if today I were to take that up again? Now, it wouldn't just happen. The only way I could do that is I'd have to take charge of my mind and prepare my mind for the action that we require which would then result in me rearranging my life, making time for practice and so on, and making that a habit. But before I could do that, I'd have to prepare my mind for it. And so you have to replace that inner conversation with one of your own choosing. And uh, the conversation that runs in my mind when I think of piano as a child is boring. I don't want to do this. And so I would have to replace that, take charge of my mind. You have to replace that inner conversation with one of your own choosing. If you don't replace the conversation that's happening in your mind, you'll never change. Most people, they're allowing other sources to control the conversation in their mind, especially from the media. And... If you don't replace the conversation that the media is putting there in your mind, that's the conversation that will continue to run there for you. Now, it's the word of God that prepares our minds for action, that helps us to replace that conversation. Joshua 1.6, saying to Joshua, shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you'll be prosperous. 
And so he's doing the same principle. Joshua, you need to go to the word of God, and that needs to determine the conversation that's happening in your mind. Not just a few minutes every day, but the word of God needs to be determining the conversation that's happening in your mind continually throughout the whole day, every day. Then you'll find change. Psalm uh, chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of uh, mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in the season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Again, what we have is the psalmist is saying you have to choose the conversation that's in your mind. You can walk in the counsel of the wicked, you can stand in the way of sinners. You can sit in the seat of the mockers. And you can allow them to control the conversation of your mind. Or you can delight in the word of God, meditate in it day and night, and allow it to determine the conversation of your mind. Then you'll be prosperous. And so our minds are to be prepared for action. And what be prepared for action means that you're going to change that conversation that's happening in your mind. And if you're not taking the necessary steps to do that, then don't expect anything to change in your life. There's that old saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same things over again, but expecting different results. Now, if that's a good definition of insanity, we're all insane because we've all done that, haven't we? Keep doing the same things over, expecting different results. Your life is the result of your mind. If you do the same things over and over again, Nothing will change. So many people even say, God, change me. They might come for prayer and say, you know, pray for me that God would change me. But what God is really saying is change your habits, prepare your mind for action, and life will change. You see, if you're praying for God to change you, but you don't want to change the conversation in your mind, God's not going to change you. Not without stepping in and maybe doing some spanking or whatever it requires for you to change your mind. There's the old joke of a man who prayed every day that God would let him win the lottery. And eventually he began to complain to God that God wasn't answering his prayer. To which a voice from heaven replied, well, help me out a bit and buy a ticket. In a similar way, many people pray to God, change my life, but they aren't willing to buy the ticket, so to speak. They aren't willing to do the work of preparing their minds for action. Now you go to the message paraphrase. I like the way it put it. It says, roll up your sleeves and put your mind into gear. That's what it's meaning here. Leaving your mind in neutral and expecting God to change you simply doesn't work. So first Peter tells us to prepare your mind for action. The second thing he tells us to do is be self-controlled. And uh, when we think of self-control, we often think of our outer actions, but that's not what he's talking about here. He says, so think clearly and exercise self-control. Other translations use sober-minded, self-disciplined, sound mind. Now, sober-minded is the most literal translation of this. But again, it's not a phrase that's common in our language anymore. And if I use that word sober to most people, they think of alcohol or drugs, and sober is not being in the, under the influence of those things. 
In other contexts, we'll use the word sober as meaning serious or sad. You might say to a child, why are you so sober this morning? Or meaning, why are you so serious? Well, that's not what sober-minded means. Some people uh, think of sober-minded as lacking the ability to laugh and have fun and so on, to be joyful. There's that old saying, so-and-so must have been baptized in vinegar or, or in pickle juice. And what they're referring to is that person is always serious. They, they just don't know how to have fun. But as Christians, we should be the most joyful of all people. Sober-minded means to take charge of your mind. It's actually to discipline your mind. Now, when we think of uh, being self-controlled, when we think of our actions, that's the fruit of a disciplined mind. And so self-discipline begins in the mind. If you discipline your mind, it will result in a disciplined body. Your life will follow. You'll never be able to take charge of your life without first taking charge of your mind. And this is why so many people cannot change in life. Because they're always trying to change their actions without first changing the mind and dealing with the mind. And so in the context of 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, sober-minded, it means to live with that single-minded focus. He follows us up with uh, about talking about setting your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed, that's to be to given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So sober-mindedness in this context is living with eternity in view, is keeping your mind focused on there. It's to discipline your mind towards eternity. It's to bring your thoughts and your beliefs and values and emotions and bring them underneath of eternity. Focus there. When you live for eternity, you begin to celebrate what those who are on the other side of eternity celebrate. So think of friends and parents, family that are already there in heaven. What are they celebrating today? Do you think they're celebrating a big bank account? A large home, fancy vehicles, personal power, clothes, physical attractiveness? Is that what they're celebrating? No, I think they're celebrating Jesus. And I think they're, they're saying, you did it, Jesus. You redeemed me. You fulfilled your promises. You did your work in my life. You brought your work to completion in my life. And you have shared your glory and your inheritance with me. It's about you, Jesus. And they're celebrating him. And so as we're to discipline our mind, that's what he's saying. We're to focus our thoughts on, discipline them towards that. To have an eternal perspective is to think as those who are in heaven think. To long for what they experience. To rejoice with them over the things they rejoice in. To value the things they value. And so we need to be asking this morning, what claims my heart? What is truly important to me? What claims my behavior? What claims my emotions? And this perspective helps us to live for today. When we live with future grace in view, it becomes the promise of God's grace for us now. Future grace is the promise of present grace. The promise of a place in eternity is the promise that I have everything I need to get there. And when I live with eternity in view, even though I do not understand the hardships that I'm going through here now, I know that I have hope. 
Hope gets me up in the morning and enables me to do the hard things that God has called me to do. Paul Tripp, in a sermon, he illustrates this by talking about a family that they want to go to Disney. And so as the family, parents and children, they've sat down and uh, they've looked at all the pictures, they looked at all the things they can do there, and they've planned out right to the detail what they're going to do and everything. But as it comes down to it, though, they don't have the money to go. And so it means that they have to give up things and they have to save. But it's that hope of getting there that helps them to give up the things today. So as they come up to something that uh, they're missing and the children, hey, why can't we do this? Well, you remember we want to go to Disney? Oh, yeah, right, Dad. It's not hard to give up something today if you have a greater hope for tomorrow. And so to be sober-minded is to have that view. It's a hope that leads to a greater experience of God's love. To be sober-minded is not to let the world to control your mind or to influence your thinking. The world wants to take over your mind. The world wants to control the conversation in your mind. And they want you thinking and speaking from that perspective. In Mark 8, we have Jesus, he begins to teach the disciples that the Son of Man is going to die on the cross and uh, he's going to be rejected and so on. And uh, he, after he's killed, he's going to rise again in three days. And he was speaking plainly about this. And Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. He begins to tell Jesus, literally, you don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus turns around and he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, he's not literally meaning that Peter is Satan. What he's saying is you're speaking the thoughts of Satan. You're having the conversation of the world going on in your mind. You're not having the conversation of God going on in your mind. And so, in one sense, we can go back to that definition. Sober is not to be intoxicated. Satan wants you to be intoxicated with the thoughts of this world under their control. To be sober-minded is to be in the, your right mind in control of your mind and to be having God's conversation running through your mind. And so at that point, Peter was intoxicated, so to speak. His mind was not rational. He was controlled by this world's thinking. He did not have God's perspective. So to be sober-minded is not to be controlled by the world, his passions, philosophies, desires, or emotions. In Romans chapter 8, uh, in verse 5, it says that uh, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires. Those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So to be sober-minded is to have your mind set on what the spirit desires. Over and over in scripture, we're just told to change our thinking. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever you can admire, if it's excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. What's he telling us? Control the conversation of your mind. Psalm 1, going back to that, 
His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So first, Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action. Secondly, he tells us to be disciplined in our minds. The third, third thing he tells us is to set our hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I was in a course one time, and uh, they... Well, actually, I, I wasn't part of the course, but I was in the classroom when it was happening, and uh, they were doing a driver uh, thing, and uh, they had all these pylons set up, and it was an obstacle driving course. And you had to be weaving in and out and knocking pilot, not knocking pylons over and, and so on. Uh, but it's always stuck with me uh, that the driver, the one that was teaching it, uh, asked the class, okay, as you're going through the course, where do you keep your eyes? And the answer she wanted was, you don't keep your eyes on the pylons. You keep your eyes where you want to go. She said, if you're keeping your eyes on the pylons and trying to miss them, you're far more likely to hit them. But if you keep your eyes where you want to go, you're far less likely to knock over a pylon. And that's really what Peter is saying here. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we get caught up, we get trapped in trying to keep our eyes on the things of this world and all the things we want to avoid or the things that we want and so on. And he's saying, no, keep your eyes focused on where you want to go, where you want to be. Jesus is coming again. I'm going to receive grace. Keep my eyes on that. Where do I find meaning for life? Keep my eyes on that. Where do I find my identity? Keep your eyes on that. Where do I find my relief in the midst of suffering? Keep your eyes on that. What should be occupying my heart? Keep your eyes on that. In what am I going to invest my thoughts, my energy, my affections, and in my emotions? Keep your eyes on that. And you'll have far less trouble with the problems of this world. You know, it's difficult to keep our focus here in life. And we have to do this on purpose. We have to take charge of the mind and focus it. We have to prepare our minds to do this. We have to train our minds to think this way. Rather than being slaves of our mind, we need to make our minds serve us. If we don't take control of our minds, our minds will enslave us. Let's just go to a farming illustration. So if you go out and you seed that field and you put in that drill, you put in wild oats, what are you going to grow? Wild oats. And when you harvest it and you're disappointed, you didn't have a nice wheat crop. Whose fault is that? It's yours because you reap what you sow. And the same in the mind. You reap what you sow in the mind. Your doing will never be right until your thinking is right. In Prairie Bible College, <coughs> we have to do some every year. You have to do some kind of physical activity. Uh, you could play a spur sport, you could uh, lift weights, uh, you could run. But everyone had to, uh, at least one semester out of your time there, you had to run. I'm not sure why they had that, but uh, that was one of the rules. And so the first semester I was there, I, I was going to run. And uh, the coach there, he would push us hard. Uh, he would just, uh, it didn't matter how good you were or how fast you were, he would just push you beyond what you could do. And... Uh, I never enjoyed that semester of running. 
I was there because I had to be there. I didn't want to be there. But it was a couple years later, one of my friends asked me to run with him that year, and I don't know why he asked, because he was a tall guy with long legs who loved to run long distances, and I'm not a runner. But for some reason, I accepted his invitation. But this time, it was my choice. I made the decision. I was going to run with him. No matter how badly I did, no matter how much it hurt, I was going to run with him, and I was going to keep at it until one day I could keep pace with him. Now, it was painful to watch at first as he would lap me, but gradually I, I was able to slowly start to keep up to him, and it eventually got to the point where he was setting the pace, and I was just keeping pace right with him. But finally, close to the end of the year, one day I passed him. And from then on, I was setting the pace for the rest of the year. Now, what's the difference between the first year and that year? It's all in the mind. It was all in the mind. I had to control and discipline the mind before I could discipline the body. And we find that so hard. Someone has said about dieting, every time I get an urge to exercise, I sit down with a bag of chips and I wait until the urge passes. <laughs> Someone else said, inside of me is a thin person just waiting to get out, but I can usually shut them up with four or five cupcakes. You know, we do find it hard to discipline ourselves, don't we? It's so hard to discipline the, discipline the mind, but that's the difference between those who succeed and those who don't. In the 1969 movie, Paint Your Wagon, uh, Lee Marvin plays a drunk named Ben Rumstead. And during the closing scene, Ben Rumstead is standing in the rain on a muddy street talking with the owner of a local store, and the store owner looks at the passing wagons loaded with people and the furniture moving out of town, and he says, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who move on and those who stay. Ain't that the truth, Ben Rumstead? No, that ain't the truth, Ben Rumstead replies with a swagger enlarged by the half-empty bottle in his hand. There are two kinds of people in this world, them that's going someplace and them that's going no place. That's the truth. You know, it's a good analogy for the Christian life. There are those who go on spiritually and grow and mature. And those that just never seem to go anywhere. And what Peter is saying, if you want to be part of the group that's moving on and growing, it's got to start with your mind. You have to discipline your mind. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Peter's words there. Hard to hear in one sense, but how true they are. And I pray that your spirit would be just speaking to us in our hearts, confirming the areas where we need to discipline the mind. And we know that you're there and ready to help us when we're willing to take that step. I thank you for the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. And we look forward to that day. And I just pray that it would motivate us in our struggle and discipline in the mind. I pray this in Jesus' name.